Well, I, I want to thank the Stouffer family for sitting in the front row. If you have uh, saw the email I sent out, I took a little shot at Bob there, and so he remedied that problem today. Actually, so yeah, and then we have like a second row too. Very impressive. If you've ever attended a concert, I notice that the the best seats always fill up early, you know? And, and so if, if we were to just look around here today, I want you to know that I have found the best seat at Waukee Community Church. The best seat is right here in my father's wheelchair because he's always the first one here and he always sits right here. So this, this is the seat to fight over if you come early. It's right there. However, I have also noticed some other things. Uh, the back row seems to be like the place where everybody wants to be. I mean, we're talking like these are seriously at Waukee Community Church, the best seats. And then you have the end row. George can get out at the, the smallest fire alert. At a, he's quick to exit. He's ready to go, you know. And then we have some lonely seats here. These poor seats that have, have just been left all by themselves, unwarmed by human touch, right? And, and, and it seems to me that, that, that there are seats that, you know, just are less desirable. Ones generally in the spit zone, for me, are not desirable. But again, thank you all. I'll try not to spin on you today. Apparently, according to James chapter 2, God cares about seating arrangements. Or does he? James chapter 2 is sort of going to tell us that God does care about who sits where. But here's why seats matter to God, okay? Seats matter to God because people matter to God. Seats matter to God because people matter to God. So we are four weeks into our series in James here called Live Like You Believe. And we have noted over and over again that James is... Probably the most practical book in the entire Bible. In fact, many, many people, if you ask them what their favorite book of the Bible is, it's James. Because James just cuts right to the heart of the issue. And he says, listen, if you're going to claim to be a follower of Christ, live this way. Do this. Don't do this. It's so practical. I mean, have you ever thought, Dave, just stop talking and just tell me what to do. Have you ever thought like that? then James is a great book for you. It's so practical. But, but sometimes, sometimes it just leads for this practical nature of the book, leads for some difficulty in us, for us, in interpreting the book of James. Um, because James is all application. So before we dive in further, I need to give you a little lesson, a, a little teaching on how to interpret the Bible. Good interpretation looks something like this. We read a text, and then put that first one up there. We read a text, and we look at the original meaning. The question we ask when we read the text is, what did this mean to the original audience? The original audience to whom James was writing was the first century Jewish church scattered abroad. So what did this mean to them? And then as we look and we read that, in simple terms, then the next step we ask is, what does this teach us about God? Is there a timeless truth here that we learn about God that, that transcends time? And then the last step in, in a very simple understanding of biblical interpretation is application for today. So we say, what does it mean then? What's the timeless truth that Scripture is trying to get at here? And then what, what does that look like 
in our lives today. Every sermon I ever preach is trying to do this with you. But there's some bad Bible interpretation out there. I don't know if you've ever noticed. The, the bad Bible interpretation says, you know, flip to the text and point in a verse and read it as if God read that, is writing that just to me. And so, like, uh, I did this earlier when I was preparing. I just pointed and flipped and, and, and ended up on Jeremiah 25, 32. And Jeremiah 25, 32 says, look, disaster is spreading from nation to nation. And we could go, did you read that? Disaster is coming. Look at the world around us. Nation by nation, their disaster is everywhere. Look, we need to rent signs and go running after people and tell them disaster is coming. I mean, that's just bad Bible interpretation. Many of us sort of do this on some other level. We don't really think intelligently through the text when we read it. We just go, well, what does God say to me today? Okay, that passage didn't mean anything to me. I don't see any practical value in that, so my devotions were a waste of time today. And we forget to think intelligently about the text. An easy, bad interpretation is just easier. James chapter 1, sometimes it works. Easy biblical interpretation. Like if we come to James chapter 4 and we read, Submit to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. It works just to go, I'll take that and I'll apply it to my life. It, It works. But sometimes it doesn't work. Like when Paul tells the church, greet one another with a holy kiss. I'm fairly certain that's a way to get me fired, right? If I, some of you would not like if I greeted your wives this way, nor would my wife appreciate it, frankly. Uh, and so uh, sometimes it doesn't work just to like naturally and, and quickly apply it to our lives. So the direct application of this passage today, as we read it, if we just skipped the whole process of Bible interpretation and went right to pla- practical matters would be... Uh, for Waukee Community Church, it, w- it would be don't favor the rich over the poor. Okay, well, that makes sense. So let's take that a step further. How do we do that? Well, according to James chapter 2, the poor people should get the good seats. Okay, well, we've already determined where the good seats are, right? <laughs> the fire exit rows. And, uh, and so what we need to figure out who is the poorest here and we'll give the good seats to the poor. So next week, what we'll need to do is we'll need a copy of your last year's tax return. And then we'll have you line up richest to poorest, okay? And, uh, and then we'll seat the poorest first and you can have the good seats. We'll even let you choose. I mean, this would be direct application of the text. Never mind the fact that rich in the ancient Roman world meant something totally and completely different than it means today. Did you know in the ancient Roman world, 90% of the population was what we would consider poor? 8% was considered wealthy. That's about the numbers. And the thing is, there was no transition in society. Only 2%, some of you math people are like, Dave, you left out 2%. Only 2% of the population could transition from poor to rich. In, in our culture, I mean, if you grow up with nothing, you know, in America, you can work hard and put it together and maybe perhaps make something of yourself and you could end up rich. It could happen. We see stories like this all the time. We transition from the poor to the wealthy. In the Roman world, that didn't happen. You were born rich or you were born poor. And only 8% of the population was rich. Now, how do we know who was rich? It was very easy. It was very easy to figure out. 
Because you could look around and you could just see who was dressed what way. The rich could afford to have someone make their clothes for them. The rest of the world made their own clothes. It was very easy to see who was wealthy and who was not. So I have an idea. Um, Rather than simply collecting all your tax returns from last year, seeing what you made, I think it might be a better idea if we unpacked this text. If we looked at it and, and looked at it today and saw what James, what his application for the first century would be and how that would then apply to us. So we need to do some reverse engineering here. I have this backpack that I bought six years ago when I was in Thailand. Um, this backpack has been all over the world with me. It's fun. I've got my sweet pack light tours emblem here. If you've been with us on a trip, you know what that means. And, uh, and this backpack I bought in Thailand. Now, here's what the uh, interesting thing is. This backpack was actually made in China, purchased in Thailand. This backpack uh, is probably not an official North Face backpack. The Chinese don't really care about such things as patent laws and things like that. So what, here's what they're really good at. They'll take a backpack. They'll get a, a backpack from the North Face. They'll send it back. They'll have one of their engineers tear the thing apart. They'll figure out how all the pieces were sewn and, and put together. They'll tear it apart, and then they'll reverse engineer it so that they can make copies of it. And it's really interesting. Then they figure out who their audience is going to be who they're going to be selling it to. If they're going to be selling it in China or shipping it to other parts of the world that don't care, they'll make it with the cheapest parts as possible. This is why my backpack has ripped apart like three times already. And I have had to sew it back together. It was made with just poor parts. Um, Other times they make it with good parts because they're going to ship it back to uh, the Western world where people tend to care more about that stuff. And so the, the, the Chinese got really, really good at reverse engineering stuff. Tearing it apart, reassembling it. In a sense, that's what I want to do today. I want to do this with James chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. I want to tear this thing apart, and then I want to reverse engineer it. I want to see how James got to the conclusion that he got to about showing favoritism. And then it'll be easier to apply it to our lives. So the first thing you need to see is there's some introductory phrases that he uses here. And these introductory phrases you can find right in verse 1. The first phrase that James uses is the phrase, my brothers. He uses it in verse 1 and in verse 5 and throughout the whole book. And the thing I love about James is that he he uses this term, my brothers. It's a really, it's a tender term. You have to understand, James is laying down the hammer here, right? I mean, James is bringing it strong, saying there's some behavior in in our churches that has to stop. He's laying it down. I love how he mixes tenderness in there. He doesn't just run away. He says, I love you so much that I'm willing, I'm willing to do what's hard in a tender way. James doesn't just run away from the problem. He doesn't just rip people's heads off for the fun of it. He speaks the truth in love. So many times some of us love to speak the truth and we forget to do it in a way that's loving. Or some, some of us, you know, are so loving we're afraid to speak the truth. Uh, that's, those are Paul's words, speak the truth in love. It's not a balance. It's not truth over here and love over here and we tend to flop one way or the other. No, it's two things together. We should always speak the truth in a tender and loving way. I love that James does that here. 
The second phrase he has is, is he talks about believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. As believers in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. I love this because James is unequivocally reminding us that Jesus is God. He's calling him Lord. And I've mentioned this like three times now. The fact that James, the half-brother of Jesus, who grew up with Jesus, is willing to call him God, speaks volumes to me. And then there's this faith, this believer's word. James is talking to us and saying, listen, what matters is not just Jesus is God, but also that you believe in him. There's this active faith that's necessary. This belief, just like we talked about when we held up the elements of the Lord's table today, we're reminded that this bread was his body broken for us. Not a bone in his body was broken, but it was mutilated and tore apart. He suffered for us. He shed his blood for us to atone for our sins. I mean, this is the message of the gospel. It's through faith in him. And so James, all the way through, as he's talking, all the way through the book of James, as he's talking about believers in our Lord Jesus, he reminds us that the theology behind what he's saying is Jesus' teachings, Jesus' very teachings. So James says, my brothers, believers in our Lord Jesus Christ, and the last thing he shows us, that he tells us in the introduction, is don't show favoritism. He gets right to the point. He, favoritism is simply showing preference to one person over another. I love to tell this to my kids. I, lo- I love to pull my kids in when I get one-on-one time with them, which is increasingly hard because we keep having more kids. But, uh, you know, you, I pull one of them in and I'll say, Anna, Anna, you're my favorite nine-year-old in the whole wide world. And Anna will say to me, Dad, I'm your only nine-year-old. And I say, oh, but you're missing the point. I love you. I mean, what if I said, Anna, you know, I don't really like you as much as I like Benjamin. Frankly, Ben's my favorite kid. The, all, the rest of you, you know, yeah, you're all right, I guess, but I don't really like you. Can, what kind of father would I be? I mean, I love all five of my children. How do you think God feels about his children? How do you think God feels about his children? He loves them all. All right, so here's our biblical interpretation process. Original meaning, timeless truth, application for today. What James does in this passage is he, he handles them in this direction, but not in this order. James is basically going to tell us, hey, I'm going to start with application, and then I'm going to tell you why I got there. I got there because of timeless truth and because it was an original meaning. And so I think what would be helpful to us today as we think through this is to flip this order back around. We're going to start at the end of chapter uh, this section, 1 to 13, and then work backwards to track along with James in, in our biblical interpretation model. So in order to re- re-engineer this text, let's flip-flop flop it around and look um, that this text that James uses. And then we'll move on to timeless truth, and eventually we'll get to application for us today. So let's look at the original meaning, and we, we find this in uh, verses 8 to 13. James provide, provides us this scriptural model or basis for why we shouldn't show favoritism to each other. And look at verse 8. Chapter 2, verse 8. He says, If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. 
Now, what is he talking about? James is quoting from Leviticus. He's quoting from two places, actually. First of all, he's quoting from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Do I have that up there, Richard? Maybe. He's getting to it. There we go. In James, uh, Leviticus 19, 18, the word of God says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. This is the law of Moses. This is the law upon which the entire Old Testament is built. It's the law upon which the people of God, the Israelites, followed. And God is basically telling them, listen, this is important. Love your neighbor as you do yourself. Don't hold a grudge. Then you flip over to Matthew chapter 22. And now, James probably didn't have Matthew in front of him. James is working up just upon the teachings of his half-brother. But we see here in Matthew 22, later Matthew wrote this down for us, and this is the teaching of Jesus. Matthew says, okay, and this is Jesus talking. He says, love, your, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So this guy comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, tell me what the greatest law is. Just tell me what the best one is. And so I can kind of get to that one. And, and Jesus says, okay, here, here's the, the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God. The second one right behind it is love your neighbor as yourself. You see, Jesus elevates this command to a position of a summary of the entire law. Love God, love the people God created. I don't know, this may sound like crazy talk, okay? Have you ever heard this before? Love God, love people. Why, who would have guessed? It's in the blossom. Imagine that. Believe, love, obey, serve, multiply. Love God, love people. It's a foundation of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We love God, we love people. Now look at verse 9. James says in verse 9, he says, If you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as a lawbreaker. See, favoritism doesn't equal loving your neighbor. If you show favoritism to some, you're not loving others. And it gets worse. (laughs) Look at this. Whoever, verse 10, whoever keeps the whole law and stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it all. He who said don't commit adultery also said don't murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do not commit murder, excuse me, but you do commit murder, you've become a lawbreaker. So James says, listen, think about this. Think about the law. We tend to follow the big commands. You know, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't, you know, be just an awful person, right? We think of the big ones. Don't steal stuff. And then we say, oh, and look, I've done all the big ones. And yet we may have missed the biggest one of all because we haven't loved our neighbor as ourself. If I favor some people over others, I haven't just broken a little. I've broken the entire law. And the same is true as an adulterer or as a murderer in God's eyes. James goes on to speak of God's mercy. And that's the gospel. When we land here, and I love how James wraps up, he talks about the mercy, the incredible mercy of God. And that's why we need the gospel. Showing favoritism is breaking the law. 
So James roots what he's about to say about favoritism in the text. He goes back to Leviticus. He refers to the teachings of Jesus. And he said, listen, here's the principle. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you break this law, you've broken the whole law. Now he moves on to a timeless truth. If we're working backwards in the text. And, and then we land on verse 5 to 7. So we started with original meaning. And now we're at the timeless truth as we're working backwards through the text. Why is favoritism such a deal? Why is favoritism law-breaking? The reason is, you and I, it's because we're rejecting someone who God loves deeply. Look at verse 5 now. Just the first part of it. James says, Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith? This word chosen has deep, deep roots in the Bible. Abraham was chosen by God out of all the people of the world, to be the father of a special people, God's people. Jesus told his disciples, you did not choose me, I chose you. The father says of Jesus, this is my son, my chosen one. In Luke chapter 9, he says, listen to him. There's a special place in God's heart for those he has chosen. There just is. And there's a special place in God's heart for those who don't have enough to meet their needs. So God says here, I've chosen the poor. I've chosen the poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith. I love that. I love that God has a special place in his heart for the poor. When we treat people unfairly, we break God's heart. Did you know that If there's a timeless truth in this passage, I think it's this. God loves the people the world rejects. In in James, it was the poor. He says, when you show favoritism, when you elevate a rich person to a higher status, you're rejecting 90% of the population whom God loves deeply. God loves those the world rejects. It's tempting for us to adopt the world system, a system that doesn't belong to God. A system that values the externals. But look, verse 6 and 7. But you've insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? James is already jumping to application here. Insulting the poor means rejecting God's value system. Because God loves the poor. You see, God loves those the world rejects. Some of you need to hear that today. Because the truth is, you walk in here today and you have this underlying feeling that you've been rejected by the world. And we have our kids in here today, you know. Kids, a lot of you are in grade school and you have this chance every day to go to school. And inside you, every day when you walk into school, you feel this, that you don't quite match up to the standard of the other kids. Some of you kids think that there are other kids who are skinnier than you or smarter than you or better looking than you. Some of you think my clothes aren't as nice because my parents can't afford as much and I'm embarrassed. Some of you think you're just ugly or maybe you're just a wallflower because you're not as outgoing. And, and kids go in and maybe you're today the person who just feels rejected. God has a special place in his heart for you. Maybe you're a, a student. You're in high school today. And, or junior high, and you get this concept all the time 
you know you're a loser. <laughs> I had that feeling when I was in high school and junior high. I'm the loser. I walk down this hallway and I just want to be careful who I see or what I say because I know at the end of the day I just don't want to get made fun of. Maybe you feel like you don't fit and you wonder why you don't have any friends. God loves you in a really special way. You don't have to be a kid to have this feeling. I mean, some of you adults, we compare ourselves all the time. You know, why didn't I get the promotion? Or why, do I get, don't, why don't I get invited with my coworkers to the after work party? Or why do my neighbors have this block party and conveniently leave me out of it? Maybe you think, I hate sports, so I can't relate to like <laughs> most people. I don't know. Maybe you just feel this general rejection by the world, and that's how you operate. Maybe as a Christian, you love things the world can't relate to. I mean, maybe you just go, I, I don't get the world. I, I can't relate. I don't understand it. C.S. Lewis quote, said this. I don't know if I put it up there or not. Do I have a quote? No. Nope. He says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. I like that quote. Because I have that feeling a lot. I'm trying, I'm searching, I'm looking, I'm trying to fit in. I'm trying to just make this world work, and I don't fit. The timeless truth is that God loves those the world rejects, be it poor or rich or a loser or whatnot. Then James gets to the last step, application for today. God loves those the world rejects, and if we're to love our neighbors as ourselves, then we need to love the losers. I mean, maybe you are a loser. Maybe you just need to love the losers. All right, so here's the thing. In James' day, if you were a Christian in, in, in the time when James was writing, which I think James was written really early, and one of the reasons that I think that he was written so early is because apparently Christians are still meeting in the Jewish synagogue. Now, they were gathering on Sunday, but they were gathering in the synagogue. The early church met there. And th- so this is probably before heavy persecution had begun. The church just kind of gathered as followers of Christ on Sunday in a synagogue, which probably wasn't being used a whole lot on a Sunday. And so they gathered there and they started to worship. Now, if 8% of this culture was wealthy, you can imagine that the early church was made up mostly of poor people. The 90%. And so a wealthy person would walk in. Now these wealthy people, we knew them by their clothes because they, were, they had the jewelry, they had the clothes that none of the rest of us had. These wealthy people in society were used to walking into a, a place, a building, a meeting, and because simply of the way they were dressed, they were used to getting special treatment. You know, I, I think that the early church probably, this was just habit. A wealthy person might wander into their synagogue meeting and go, I'd like to check out this Jesus thing. And say, oh, come on in. In fact, woo, you're a wealthy person. And they'd grab Nate here, and they'd grab him by the ear, and they'd take him to the back and say, you're just a poor person. Sit on the ground, and we're going to escort the rich person right here and give them your nice seat. I mean, that, that's kind of how it worked. And that's why James gets so frustrated. James says, you've assigned a lesser value to a guy who loves Jesus. And if there's anything that, that the New Testament teaches us, is that God is about breaking down these silly social barriers that we set up. 
So does this really work for us today? I, I mean, I hope we wouldn't go, if someone walked in and was extremely wealthy, I hope that we wouldn't, you know, give them a better seat. I, I just really don't, I can't see Waukee Community Church doing that, you know? Uh, I, I don't know if that would happen here. But the truth of the matter is, how do we even tell who's rich in our culture to begin with? Is it the kind of car you drive? Right? Or maybe the, is it the clothes you wear? The truth is we have no idea who in our culture who's rich. All nice stuff tells you is that they're probably leveraged in debt up to their eyeballs. Right? I mean, we don't know. There's, externals don't tell us anything about the wealth of a person. And the truth of the matter also is that, frankly, we're all rich people. I mean, we live in Waukee, Iowa, on the west side of Des Moines. Wait, whatever the commercial is, right? We're here. We're all rich people. Even if you take food stamps in this culture, you're rich in the eyes of the world when you take the whole globe in. And so the truth is we're all rich. So we all should get preferential treatment or not get preferential treatment. It's just so difficult. You see, in the original text, Jesus said, love your neighbor. The truth is God loves those the world rejects. And really, this has very little to do with where you sit at Waukee Community Church. It has everything to do with your attitude. It has everything to do with how you love people. And so if there's an application for us today, it's that you and I as followers of Jesus need to be really careful that we love the people that the world rejects. Who are these people? Well, just think for a minute. Who are the people that the world rejects? They're the socially awkward. They're the ones that seriously need a bath. They're the ones that are totally unaware of their own social skills or lack of them. They usually don't function well in groups. They don't understand personal boundaries. They aren't type A's who can just run out and make friends. They're hard to figure out. The ones the world rejects are sometimes they're poor and unsuccessful. Sometimes they're just sinners, you know. Sometimes they can just be lazy and we don't like them because they seem lazy to us. Maybe the ones the world rejects are selfish. Maybe, just maybe, they're the people that just don't fit. Waukee Community Church, friends, should be a place for losers. It's part of my dream that Waukee Community Church should be a place for the people that don't fit that are awkward, that you, that you have a hard time talking to. Because Jesus loves the losers. When Nick was six years old, my, my 13-year-old, we still live down in Indianola, and uh, Nick befriended this kid who uh, sort of lived in a trailer most of the time. I mean, like, I've been in his trailer, and, you know, whether his trailer actually stopped the rain from coming in, I didn't know. His dad was probably drunk most of the time. Uh, this kid had very little life. He stunk. I mean, we would have this kid over to our house, and we would have to open the windows and air out after this little kid came to our house because he just stunk so bad. And yet here's my son, my six-year-old, who doesn't care about what this kid smells like or what the world sees him as. He just wanted to love him. The world had rejected him. Nick showed this kid that God did not. 
We should want to be the kind of people who love the losers. But the truth is, we don't always do that. Because sometimes we intentionally show favoritism to people. Most of the time, no. But sometimes, yes. And it's oftentimes how we pick relationships. Think about how you choose the people that you let into your life. I think we unconsciously let people into our life for a couple reasons. First of all, we let them into our lives because we benefit from that that relationship somehow. We love people who we deem as rich because we think we're going to get something out of it. We love people we think are powerful or influential because they, knowing them, rubbing shoulders, might mean we increase in power and influence. So sometimes we choose our relationships based on what we can get. What about the people who can't give us anything? Sometimes we choose relationships based on those ones that are just easy. You know, the people that are just like us, where there's no conflict, there's personalities we like. You all know you've been around the people who, they drain you when you spend time with them. And most of the time, we quickly eliminate those people from our lives. It's one thing to set up boundaries. It's another thing to totally cut people out of our life. We choose relationships that are easy and good for us. What's best for us. Have you ever thought about loving a loser? Have you ever thought about letting someone into your life who you know is going to be difficult? Who you know that is going to take your time? You're, you're not going to personally benefit probably, very, at least initially, from anything in this relationship. Have you ever thought about letting those people into your lives? Because God loves the losers. So, listen, let's just come back. If we wrap all this up, we, we look at the original meaning. We saw love your neighbor as yourself and this timeless truth that God loves the losers. And you and I should think about letting losers into our lives so we can show them the love of Christ. When, uh, t- two stories and, and I'll end. When I was a youth pastor early on, I took a trip to Chicago with some kids um, it was kind of a fun trip. It was a chance to get away. There were some of my upperclassmen. They were looking at Christian colleges. So we did the great Christian college tour of, of Chicago. And, and we're sitting in, we're, we're walking through downtown. Um, and there's one student in particular that has no idea, is completely unaware of the concept of personal space. You know, it's the person that stands here and breathes their bread breath on you. And literally, I would walk down the road, and he, keep, he keeps bumping into me and shoving me over. Hey, Dave. Hey, Dave. You want to Hey, Dave. What do you think of that? Oh, Dave. What's this? Dave. What's that? Dave. Oh, look at that. A car. Shiny thing. Woo. Wow. Dave. 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 And I'm just pulling my hair out, you know. And so I'm like, hey, friend, why don't you go back to the hotel with some people back there and spend some time away from me? <laughs> You know, it's like a moment of epic failure on my part as I look back. I mean, just put fail in front of it. Because truth be told, he was difficult for me. What he needed most from me at that moment is to help him learn some just general social norms in our culture. Because no one had ever bothered to show him. No one ever bothered to tell him or teach him. I should have loved him. 
I was talking with someone this week who we were talking about this concept of loving the losers, and, and he was telling me that he was in a meeting once um, at a church, and, and there was a woman there, and it came time to share prayer requests, and she just kept going on and on, sharing all these silly, little, silly prayer requests, and it just got annoying. And, and this guy was thinking, I don't really want to have anything to do with this woman. Thank you very much, because that is going to get old really fast. And this person was telling me at that very moment God spoke to him. He put a stamp on his heart and said, how dare you judge her? Do you know how many silly things you've asked me for? How about you? Who's the loser in your life? That to show the love of God because of God, how God has loved you, that you need to adopt them. You need to let them into your life. You need to love on them because Christ loves them. And you claim to be a follower of Jesus. God loves the losers. Will you? Let's pray as we close. God, I'm so guilty of violating the very thing I preach on that so many times I just want people in my life who can help me or do things or make my life easier God, would you give me the courage to love people as you love them, because you love them? Help me to take this concept that James is talking about of not showing preference to one person over the other. Help me to be the hands and feet of Jesus in this world. God, we pray that as a church, that you would challenge us and change us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.